for our sermon today. It'll be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, Being the Fullest Version of Ourselves. Well, good afternoon. It's uh, good to see everybody. It's it's good to be able to at, at least attempt to stand up here for about an hour or so, or maybe two, maybe about two hours. I've got a lot to catch up on. <clears throat> no, hopefully um, this, this will be uh, a useful message for us. It, it is actually the one that I was intending to bring um, on atonement before I woke up on a Wednesday morning to find the room spinning around half of my body feeling numb and uh, kind of pins and needles, and then um, I embarked on a, a new journey. It's really jarring, isn't it, when you just kind of come to a moment in life where one day you were functioning and healthy and you had plans, and then the next day everything changed. And I know that we've all had different experiences with that, sometimes health-related, sometimes other circumstances that just come on us in life, and it's, uh, it's jarring. And sin is one of those things, believe it or not, because oftentimes we are going through life and then we suddenly experience the negative consequences of maybe somebody else's sin, or even, finally, the negative consequences of our own sin coming home to roost, right? Anybody else had that experience? Not just me, right? And so, this message, although it was prepared for atonement, I think is continually useful. Because atonement, while we celebrate it annually, is not a one-time process, is it? When you think about atonement, it is an ongoing process that Jesus performs for us. It's relevant for us each and every day. Why do we know that? Well, because we sin often, don't we? Sometimes each and every day different ways to different levels, we continue to wrestle with our nature and this, this flesh that we still have to inhabit. Every time we sin, each time we are convicted of that sin, we're brought to a place of repentance. Hopefully, we're brought to a place of repentance. And each and every time Jesus Christ will be honestly, repentingly come to him, he performs that atonement process that we, that we remember, that we memorialize once a year, that we really unpack and, and look into. But it's so helpful for us to remember the atonement process that continues to restore our relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 2, and verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. That sounds good. So if I just listen to everything that John says, I'm not going to sin anymore. No, 
Well, he was hoping so, maybe. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The whole world. Whether they know it or not. He is the propitiation of their sins. Now, if they're still in their sin, they haven't accepted it, right? They haven't allowed him to work that atonement process in their life. But nonetheless, he stands ready for that. This propitiation word, it's, uh, it's a bit of a tongue twister. And it's, it's a really interesting word because the English version, it comes actually from the Latin version, propitiato, if I'm pronouncing that right. And it essentially means atonement. Kind of a variant on the idea of atonement. And as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7 and verse 25 about Jesus, who is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he says, therefore he is also able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So in, in this sense, we are in a permanent atonement process. Jesus stands ready to make intercession for us, to, to step into that role any time that we have sinned, any time that we are repentant of that sin, through we're, we're brought to that place. By what? What brings us to repentance? There's a word and it begins with G. We feel guilty, don't we? We have this guilt that comes on us by our actions, what we've done. Sometimes it's immediate, because sometimes we know what we just did. Sometimes it's later, as we consider the ramifications, as we step out of outside of our sometimes self-righteousness, right? No, I wasn't wrong. I wasn't wrong to honk my horn and wave my fist at that lady. Okay, maybe I was a little wrong. And then we finally recognize that we sinned. And so we are brought to this place of repentance. But what about this word, <clears throat> this central part of atonement? What about this word sin? Do we like that word? We don't really, do we? Do, you, do we even use that word very often? I was sitting there thinking about this um, as I'm preparing this message, and I'm, I'm thinking, how often do I use the word sin in my daily life? And I, I think outside of maybe giving a sermon where, I, where I'm going to say the word sin probably quite a lot in the next few minutes, but outside of that, I probably use the word sin in my prayers. Maybe you're the same way. What other words do you use instead? 
when you're thinking about your actions, or when you're convicted of, of, of something that you've said, done, thought, whatever it may be, that is in the category of sin, what do you, what do you say? Sorry. Mistakes. That's right. Or I messed up. Oh, I really messed up today. Just stay away from that sin word. Um, why is that? Why do, we, why do we stay away from that word? Except maybe when we're reading scripture and when we're coming to God. And, and maybe we don't even use it in our prayers. Well, God, I messed up today. Um, I made a mistake. There's some stronger versions of that that I won't say from the pulpit, right? That we might feel, that we might even say in our honest moment of repentance with weeping and, and genuine repentance. Why do we, why do we run away from this, this word? Well, it comes with all kinds of connotations, all kinds of religious meanings, right? It carries with it this weight of condemnation. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm not really a big fan of being wrong. Anybody else like to be wrong? No. Some of us, that's, a, that's a more of a challenge than others, but nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to find themselves in a place where they've failed when they've committed sin. So we, we might adopt to, to use a different word and maybe even have a different attitude about our actions. But what is sin? What is it? Well, in uh, Romans chapter 6, and verse 23, we get an understanding that sin is actually a pretty dangerous thing, substance, element, action. Whatever it is, it's pretty dangerous. For the wages of sin is death. So sin can lead to death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. So it is the exact opposite in many ways to the gift of God. Sin is pretty heavy. In fact, you may all be sitting here thinking, I wish you would top, stop talking about sin right now. Can we move on to something else? I don't want to be reminded of the wages of my actions when I've sinned. I don't want to be reminded of this weight of sin. Going back to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, John says it this way. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. I think the King James says transgression of the law. So sin is the breaking of the law. Sin is something that brings about death. Okay. So that's pretty simple, straightforward. We understand then that sin is the transgression, the breaking of the law, 
and sin leads to death. So don't do that anymore. You all got it? Okay. If it were only that simple, right? If only it were that simple. Don't break the law of God and you will live. So we should be in good stead. And yet, we're not. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, all sinned, for, unto the, uh, for until the law, sin was in the, uh, was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Never, never, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So even though we didn't actually commit the same sin as Adam did, we've all sinned. We will all die because of that sin. But of course, we're not without hope. Fortunately, Paul doesn't leave us without hope. The gospel doesn't leave us without hope. Because just in a few verses before Paul said this, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us that in, in that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God that through, our, through the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so we have received this reconciliation. We can thank God for that. Because if it was not for Jesus Christ, if it was not for what he's done for us, we would be lost. We would have no hope. We would just have suffering and death without any point, without any purpose. But I still want to come back to my original question because I'm not really satisfied with these answers. I mean, we have some answers to what sin is, but, but what else is it? Because the atonement process itself is really curious of how it looks at sin. I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but we have this practice that we call atonement. The original atonement service was the, the high priest in the tabernacle. And, and God is presenting through this, through this role and through the actions that this high priest performs, it's almost like a play. It's like a show. Not, not you know, just entertainment. But it's, it's, it's showing forth the process of salvation. It's showing forth, looking forward to Christ Jesus, who is our atonement. And it, it's performed every year. 
And it's a means of communicating a message to us about what God is doing and what is he doing it for and with. And it's a story of how he's going to redeem us. So in Leviticus chapter 16, we're given all these symbols. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through every single one, but we have the high priest, and we have the two goats, and we have the one that's sacrificed, and it's, his blood is used to cleanse the altar and the tabernacle, and, and even the mercy seat. And atonement is made for the most sacred part of the holiest place. And I just find that fascinating because somehow the sin of the people creeps into the tabernacle and creeps into the holiest place. Nobody has been in the holiest place since last atonement. And yet, here is sin in this place needing to be atoned for. So then we go through this atonement process. It's a removal of the separation of the gap between God and reconciling and making everything right. We have this whole sanctification process played out right before us and before all the people. But it doesn't stop there. Because what happens next is, I think, remarkable. And, you know, we read this often and we tend not to think about it. And it's easy to skip over some of the amazing steps and processes that God has put in place in the atonement show, if you want to call it that, the atonement story. In Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 20, it says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the, the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, it's hard for us to do, but if you can, try and look at this scripture as though you're hearing it for the first time. Because when this was first delivered as the instruction for for atonement, this had never been revealed before. This was brand new. The understanding that we've gained from studying atonement, we kind of take for granted. And yet, the people before this, the vast majority of people, except for maybe very few, Abraham and and so on, had no concept of the removal of sin and the restoration of right relationship with God. Now, they had practices. They had all kinds of practices. Many of them involved sacrifice, and not always of animals, in order to appease the gods and somehow get some sort of relationship with them so they can get blessings and not punishments. And 
human history is just full of all of that poor attempt at trying to get an atonement process in place in the human life, in the human heart. And so here we have this remarkable moment where basically God is saying, look, this is how I'm going to remove sin from your life, from your heart, from the place where you dwell. Now, there are many, perhaps differing, slightly differing interpretations of, of what's going on here, but I think there are two very clear elements of what is happening. First and foremost, in this removal of transgressions, this removal of sin, what do you see as the first actual step in that removal? Anybody see a step here, first step? Confession. Confession, right? Confessing our sins. So if we go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So that first primary step is for us to confess our sins. And that's what we see the high priest do. He confesses onto this goat all the sins of the people. Now, I'm fairly sure that he wasn't going one by one. Might have been there for a while. But he was accepting for the people, on behalf of the people, that they were sinful, that they had broken God's commandments. And he was confessing that before God. It is such a critical part the redemption process, of the atonement process. Without confession, it is impossible for our sins to be released. And then secondly, we are presented with this idea that there's some sort of transference of sin. What do you think about that? That your sin can be transferred. I mean, this was new. This was, when presented for the first time, was very new. When I think about that, it kind of, you know what it reminded me of? Like when you get sticky goop glue or something on your fingers, or like tape, really sticky tape, and you're trying to flick it off your finger, and you take your other hand, and now it's stuck to that hand, and you just back and forth, and you're trying to get rid of this thing. Anybody ever done that? Sometimes the worst isn't even sticky. It's static, right? When you have a little piece of material, and you're trying to get it off you, and it's static, and it just keeps flying back toward you. And the only way to remove that is to bring it to the edge of an object or a person and stick it on them. <laughs> right? Now it's your problem. If you do it right in the middle of the back, they can't get to it, and it's, it works much better. But so this concept, it's a little weird. 
that we can somehow put our sin onto someone else. And then that someone else takes it away. And so this, this sin that gets in the way, like this piece of tape that's stuck on our hand, we can't pick other things up, gets in the way of how we're going to operate, how we do life. That's exactly what sin does, isn't it? It gets in the way of us being the fullest, most complete version of who God wants us to be. And so sin is almost presented like this substance that can be transferred, transferred to this, this goat. So when we have sin, what else does it do to us? Well, it, uh, it damages us. Because unlike the piece of tape, it actually can wound. It can actually hurt. It can cause guilt, for one. Emotional response to the realization that we've sinned in the first place. And, and guilt is useful. Guilt brings us to the place of repentance. And, and so, in a certain sense, that's good. But then, worse than that, sin that is not repented of, that is not transferred to someone else to be taken away, it becomes something else. It becomes shame. And what is the difference between guilt and shame? Well, guilt is, I've done something wrong, and I feel guilty about that. Shame is, I am wrong. That there is something wrong with me. And that is a very dangerous place to be indeed. When we fall into shame, it inhibits us, it limits us, it wounds us, it controls us, and as I said before, it stops us being the fullest version of who God made us to be. And so as a substance, a sticky, heavy substance, it is something that we can't remove ourselves. We just pass it from one part of ourselves to another. This sin needs to be taken away. So then we are left with this question. Who takes those sins from us? Well, I think it is very clear from what King David says in Psalm 103 and verse 11. He says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions, our sins from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. I'm not going to argue with David. It's pretty straightforward. And his words are in scripture, not mine. We have it also further reinforced in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but the instruction 
in uh, Leviticus 16 is that once the sins have been transferred onto this goat, what happens? Do you remember the instruction? It's taken to a land uninhabited. Taken to a land where nobody lives. What does that remind you of? Where is there a land that nobody lives? In its fullest extent. It's called the grave. Nobody lives in the grave. And to me, that's how I am understanding this. That it's taken to a place where there is no life. There's nowhere for it to inhabit. It is taken to an uninhabited place. As far as the east is from the west, well, the grave is the furthest way, furthest place from us, isn't it? The furthest place from life. Jesus has removed our sin from us, from the world of life, and deposited all of our sin into the world of death, a land uninhabited. But I want to ask you a question. Does this, does this process really work in us? Is it really working in us, in you and I? Are we really allowing the atonement process to work in us. Remember, we're, we're given these two core elements, which is confession, and then transference. You have to give up these sins and allow them to be taken away. Have we confessed? Maybe we have. But the second part is it's trickier than the first. If we have confessed, well then we're halfway there, but the second part is harder. Those sticky sins have to be taken away from us. We have to let them be released and taken away from us. One of the ways in which we can know if we are really accepting of this atonement process, and this is kind of a hard thing to hear, but one of the most powerful ways I think that we can know whether this atonement process is really working in us, allowing us to be free from sin, removing sin from us, is whether or not we are living in the condition shame. Let me state that again. One of the ways in which we can understand and know whether or not the atonement is really working in us is whether or not we are living without shame. If we are living in a perpetual state of shame, we are not allowing the transfer of those sins to be taken away. Shame is a very deeply destructive and powerful emotion and condition. It's not the feeling, like I said before, of guilt that I've done something wrong. I've made a mistake. I've messed up. It's more than that. 
It is the belief that I am something wrong. That there is inherently something wrong with me. Now, before Christ, before we accepted him as our personal savior, before we entered into this relationship with him, maybe you could argue that. But now, walking in newness of life, as Paul is encouraging us to do, are we now in shame? Should we be living in shame? Should we be saying, it's not that I've sinned, but that I am perpetually a sinner? Not that I sin at times, but that I am characterized by sinning. At its core, what I'm talking about is the identity of shame. We are taking that on as our identity of who we are, and we are staying trapped in shame. And, you know, it's, it's so insidious, because when we are trapped in shame, Guess what we see all around us? Our sin. It's, it's a circular process. When we're trapped inside of shame, all we see is things that we fail to do. It's a dreadful place to be. It's a deeply painful place to be. And it wounds us and cuts us at our very core. And in doing so, it affects our relationships. It affects the connection with our most intimate relationships at times. It damages those relationships. Shame has no redeeming qualities at all. It can often masquerade as humility, but it's really self-hatred and contempt. And so... If we are living in that place, then we are not allowing the atonement process that's freely offered to us to work in our hearts and our minds. We effectively stop Jesus from doing what he gave his life to do. We don't allow him to take away those sticky, painful sins And it stops something else from happening. It stops us from being the fullest version of who God created us to be, which is ultimately a grievous sin of itself. When we are not allowing God to change us and mold us and shape us into the fullest version of who he made us to be. What do I mean by that? Well, when you look in the New Testament, and we can just constrain it to the New Testament now, about 75% of the time when the word sin is used, it simply means missing the mark. You just miss the mark. It doesn't even say by how much. It just says you miss the mark. And then about 25% of the time, it is a derivation of the same word. So when sin is, gem- generally speaking, when sin is mentioned in the New Testament, it just means 
Well, you missed it. You missed the mark. Now, I, I'm not minimizing sin. I'm not minimizing the consequences of our sinful actions. They can be damaging and hurtful. But it's really important for us to understand what sin truly is. It's missing the mark. But there's an inherent truth in this process. Because if you're aiming at something and you miss the mark, you miss, let's say, the bullseye, what does it mean? You were aiming at something. You were aiming at the mark. That is good. So many of you guys might remember we, uh, in, the, in the men's Bible study, we did an event. Um, everybody remember the axe throwing? Yep, we all came back with all of our limbs. I don't know who invented the idea of axe throwing where you go to a place where there's sharp axes and there's a bunch of guys with beer. Brian invented it. Okay, well, that, that kind of makes sense now. So, yeah, we go to a place and you have some beer and, and sharp objects and you're trying to hit this, this target, right? Now, when we did it, I think it was a Sunday morning, so there was no beer. We did the nice Christian version. But there was a lot of goading of one another. I, I, I believe that I was probably the worst. Keith can account for that. We split up into two teams, I think, if I remember correctly, and I was fortunately on the team with Brian. And you do not want to meet Brian in the dark alley when he's carrying an axe. I'm just, I'm just saying he's deadly. He'll hit that target almost every time. And so... We had a lot of fun. We were playing with each other and just, it, it was a lot of fun. And sometimes we hit the mark. But there were times when it landed on the floor. There was maybe a few times when it came close to a light fixture or two. And then maybe even bouncing off and almost hitting another person. But we were aiming at the mark. We weren't aiming at another person, at least not as far as I know. We were trying to hit the bullseye. We're trying to win. And, you know, get a bunch of guys with sharp objects, even without beer, and it's all about the competition. So we were really trying to win. We just didn't always hit the mark. And that's simply what sin is is a failure to hit the mark. What is that mark? What is the mark that we're supposed to hit? Well, we sell it, see here. In, let's uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. In this passage, Paul is telling us that he gives all kinds of resources to the church. He says in verse 12, for equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, edifying of the body, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the mark. Who's there yet? Nobody's there yet. But what are we all doing? 
or aiming for the mark. We may miss at times, but we are aiming for the mark of Christ, for that stature, that fullness of Christ, aren't we? We're not trying to fail. We are aiming for that mark. Jesus is the mark. He's the measure. He's the goal. He's the example of the fullest version that we were called to be. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sticky sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to ask you a question. When it says despising the shame, what do you think that means? That Jesus despised the shame. Well, some might say, well, he's despised the shame of the cross. It's a shameful way to die. I mean, you're basically naked and you're hanging on a piece of wood, all dignity removed. I mean, feeling shame would not be unusual, right? But I don't think it's that. Because Jesus knew that he didn't deserve to be there. He had to know that he didn't deserve to be there, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to do what he did. So what shame did he despise? Ours. Our shame. He looked at our shame and says, doesn't matter. I'm not interested in it. It has no value. He despises it. It is of no value whatsoever. Because he's made it of no value whatsoever. He is releasing us from that shame. A shame that he endured, or that he despised when he endured the cross, was our shame. And when we hold on to that, when we hold on to that shame, we are not allowing him to free us from the burdens of that shame. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On the account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Through the atonement process, he makes it, and makes a way for us every day to be free from sin, to be free 
from the shame that we can so easily wrap ourselves up in. We're not characterized by missing the mark. We are characterized about aiming towards that fullness, that measure, that stature that is Jesus Christ. We are free from shame. Let's live in that freedom. Let's accept that freedom, that we are new, that we are made new, that he has removed the shame. There is nothing for us to be ashamed of anymore. There is now no condemnation to those who are in.